Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello, it's Ben and Sonia here. Welcome to Londoners, where we chat to the people behind the coolest things in London. Today, we're chatting with Ryan Chetty Wardner, a.k.a. Mr. Lion. A.k.a. the best bartender in the world. He's behind Cub, Super Lion and the best bar in the world, Dandelion, now Lioness. He's all about the cocktails and he can make them all. Martinis, Negronis, G&Ts, Yorkshire teas. Oh, come on, let's go put the kettle on. Let's have a couple with Ryan. Cheers. It's interesting because I used to pronounce it kind of phonetically as a kid. So it was Chetty Awadana um, because it was it was just difficult for us to get used to how to say it. Um, and then there was a point where it was actually my sister. She called me up and it was on my voicemail saying, this is Ryan Chetty Awadana. And she's just like, that's not how you pronounce our name. <laughs> I was like, oh, no. And it actually... The the Singalese still. You at this point, like oh no, this was this was not that long ago. <laughs> um, but it's the Singalese kind of softens it. It's a lot nicer to say, but I still can't say it right. But it's Chathia Wardener. Oh wow! So the T I softens and the D softens. That's nice. Right? We did not say that. Go on, Ben. I can't do it. I don't, yeah, I don't it's want to it's very me. scary when you look at it on a page as well. But that's why the Mister Lion thing came about because it was, you know. I struggled with it. So that meant everybody else struggled with it. You know, if I, even if I was at school, it got abbreviated when I was young. And that just kind of seemed a shame because that's not the full name. Um, and the Mr. Lion thing was like a childhood moniker. So it was kind of a nice way of having something that eased all of that difficulty. Um, and it kind of brought it back in a really personal way. So it's, it, I totally understand the difficulties with the name. It is a very nice name, though. It's a shame that you can't really yeah. <laughs> get, it, get it on. Yeah, and you can see people struggle with it. And that's not fun. So, yeah, yeah Mr. Line makes it easier. Well, you know, we've had fun with it so Good. far. Good. <laughs> so um, you're pretty much the best barman in the world these days. So, um, <laughs> Thank you. How did you even get into cocktails? How did it all come about? Um, I kind of fell into it, to be honest. I think a lot of people in the food and drink world kind of end up kind of going a really circular route to to kind of be part of it. And I actually started in kitchens before I started in bars. So I was, um, you know, I grew up in Birmingham and kind of food was a really big, not actually drink that much, actually. Food was a big part of our family life growing up. If you've ever been to a Sri Lankan household, you'll notice how like the the centerpiece around things is to overfeed people. Um, I, I'm down for that. It, it's amazing. Yeah. And it's a really lovely thing. But my mum was... You know, she'd always do that. It was this huge thing about cooking a big feast and and bringing people together. And that really informed the way I thought about food. And 
you know, we had been from a very young age cooking. We'd been helping her out in the kitchen. Um, latterly, she was a pastry chef. So we were always helping with lots of different bits. And I loved that world and I wanted to learn a bit more about it. And I was actually, I was coming down to London to go to, to art college here. And in that kind of gap between school and kind of come to college, I wanted to do something that was like, okay, I love this. I want to explore it a bit more and just know a bit more about it, not thinking about it as a career at all. And enrolled, there was a catering college in, in Birmingham. So started studying there and loved some of the practical side of it, but missed that whole thing of, okay, this is what you use to bring people together. So my best mate went, well, if you want to still work with flavors and understand those things and you want to talk to people and do that interaction, go work in a bar. So it just kind of became the the kind of side for a bit. And while I was studying, I was down here, I was up in Scotland for a long time. It was it was the constant. So I was in cocktail bars since I was legally allowed to be. And were you so were you kind of making cocktails in a bar in Birmingham? Was that Yeah. So I um I was really there's a bit of a catch twenty two around cocktail bars where they're like you you have to have cocktail experience to be able to go work in a cocktail bar. Um, so I essentially just blagged my way in. I was, there was a bar like, that I know how to do this. You just shake it, right? <laughs> totally. Put it in that thing, shake it about. It's probably going to be fine. I was like, it's fine. You know, we've been, we've been drinking alcohol for years. I'm all over this. Um, no, but I kind of knew that they were building up to kind of the Christmas period and it was going to be busy. Um, so I just said, well, if you, you know, I knew that they had like a training thing. I was like, if you give me the material, I'll come in and I'll just bar back and I'll do the work. And if I pass the test, then you take a punt on me. And if I don't, then you've not really lost anything. You've had a bar back for a bit. Um, and they were like, okay, we'll, we'll give it a try and um, pass the tests, fell into the, I loved the the kind of bartending and the interaction side of it and and just really took to it. And it felt very, it felt very natural to me as a setting. I, I loved being in the bar and I loved that kind of You're buzz. And, that, yeah. yeah, totally. So did you, that, at that point, did you have any kind of mentors or kind of key p- people who were an inspiration to you? Yeah, I think I was really fortunate. Like even when I started in Birmingham, there was a couple of, you know, the two bar- like head bartenders at the time were really great at instilling this, you know, they gave me lots of knowledge, which was which was amazing. You know, there was a lot of things at that time where there wasn't a lot of resources to learn and, and they were really handy with that. But I think it was when I went up to Scotland that I was really fortunate to have actual mentors. Um, I, w- I was really lucky to be around a bunch of people that were you know, real veterans of of the food and drink world. And they'd kind of covered lots of different backgrounds. And, you know, again, they'd fallen into it from different directions. And so they came with this amazing kind of body of knowledge. And was that the first time you ever used iron brew in a cocktail? <laughs> yeah, it was. Um, I actually hadn't come across iron brew until I went up to Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that is an education in itself. Yeah. Um, so how did you go from obviously working in bars um, to opening your own bar? Well, it was something I'd kind of, I, I think, you know, it's in some ways it's kind of purported as the thing that every bartender wants to do. Um, and I, th- I think that's changed a bit now. I think some people have realized that it's not for everybody, but from quite a young period, I was, I think there was things that I saw in other venues that I knew I didn't want to do. And, you know, I'd been chatting a lot with my sisters who are not in the industry. Um, you know, one's in fashion, one's in design. And we'd always talked about something that allowed us to to kind of reflect what we loved around, about the world of food and drink. And so for, for a few years, we talked about doing some things. Natasha was in New York. So we kind of talked about maybe opening a bar in New York. Um, and then she moved back to London. Karen was in London. And um, it just kind of all came together with a couple of ideas that we we thought would be fun to launch with. And we just started to work towards 
making that a reality. Were you looking in East London specifically or were you kind of just like wherever, well, you know? No, we were, we were very much that um, we wanted to be in East London. That was, I think the, I'm attracted to places that are a bit of a destination and, and, and things that have a, a very distinct character to them. So I think there are other parts of London that do have that, but East London was always, it always been where I'd lived. It always been where I was, you know, all my friends were, they lived and worked. And there was a real sense of, you know, in East London, it's a reflection of this idea of, of trying to push things forward and change in a, in a really positive way. And that felt like it was a kind of kinship. So it felt like the only real place that we'd be able to do it. That's what I find in- interesting. You saying that East London is like the, the place where you could envision your bar being open and then yeah. you've completely shifted into somewhere that's very not East London. Yeah. Right? Well, interestingly, I think South London has, although it's just on South Bank, South London's got a bit of a, um, a, a kind of similar mentality of trying to do things a bit differently and trying to push a different agenda. But what was nice about that was it still felt like a destination. Mm. So we, we always wanted to do things in a very democratic way. It was about trying to open up the world of cocktails to people. And what was nice about looking at the project on South Bank was, you know, there was these amazing cultural institutions around the space. You know, you, I was going down there to go to, you know, you got the Hayward Gallery, you got Tate Modern, you've got the BFI. All of those things are incredible that people would take trips to. And then you try and have a, like a decent bit of food and drink. Yeah, you're and like, oh, we've seen a really nice exhibition. Where do we go now? Uh. Yeah. <laughs> and you end up in something that's really generic. And it felt really at odds with everything else that was going on in that space. So the idea of being at a project that, you know, it's got insane foot, foot traffic along that, that, that route. But again, it still felt like a bit of a no man's land for something. So creating a destination within that space still felt very appealing to me. Um, so going back to White Line, what was the concept sort of when you opened that bar? What did you kind of want people to experience when they came, came so it, there for a drink? There, there was a couple of pillars that kind of like were at the heart of, of what we wanted to do. And, you know, one was, you know, to me, it was about what bartending was about. You know, I saw a lot of the bars in, in, in the landscape at the time. It was it was quite, this is our cocktail and, and you've got to care about it. And it felt very heavy and it felt very serious, very serious to the point where I just, you know, my friends wouldn't go to a cocktail bar. I'd seen like friends on a date be lectured at a bar. And I just, I was like, that's not what cocktails are about. It's about helping people come together. And, you know, for some things it's a, it is a spectacle because that helps with whatever setting you're trying to create other things. It's just create something delicious and help people have fun. And we didn't see a huge amount of venues that were putting that focus on at the time. And that's what we wanted to do. We wanted to just kind of turn the whole like way of delivery around that it put the guest at the heart of it. So it kind of removed all of the things that a lot of my friends found really scary. You know, it was expensive to go to a cocktail bar. You know, they thought to get lectured. They thought it'd take 30 minutes to get a drink. So we just removed all of that. We removed that whole thing that it became quite scary to go into a cocktail bar at times. And, you know, you'd walk up to a bar and, you you know, you might drink a gin and tonic and you go... I'll have a gin and tonic. That suit my mood. And the bartender, not being rude at all, would be like, well, is there a particular gin you want? And that's great. Choice is, is amazing. But sometimes you're like, well, you, you, it's, you're still kind of blinded by that panic. And you're like, I don't know, the blue one. Yeah. And not that there's anything wrong with that, but it wasn't necessarily guiding you towards something. It's a bit snobby. Though, like yeah. some bars are sort of, I think they want to be intimidating. Yes, and Like definitely. a bit snooty. Yeah. There, there's certainly that. I mean, it's changed hugely over the, the, you know, particularly London at the moment is in in such an amazing landscape for it. But, you know, that was six years ago and it was a very different world for cocktails. And, you know, people were interested interested by it, but they were still, there was that kind of intimidation. So how do you then start to dispel that and break that down to make people feel more? 
we took away all of the the kind of standard pillars of the the kind of cocktail bar settings. You didn't have a back bar, you didn't have the shakers, you didn't have anything else. It just you know we purposefully look for a pub setting because there's something about you know the way that the space works that feels very democratic and open. And then we we just did it where we gave ourselves that time. We could chat to people if they wanted to know about it. We could talk for hours. If they didn't, we could get them a drink in under ten seconds. So it was kind of bringing that same thing that you'd have in a pub where. There's no time barrier. There's no um, like confusion around it. There's there's a list of stuff. We're there to help. We just tried to make it very easy. And you know we we had some real real veterans of the industry who were really great at just making people feel comfortable. They weren't there to kind of like you know yes the team made incredible drinks, but to them that wasn't the important product. It was about going okay, what are you in the mood for? What suits you? Or what what do you actually want to have right now? And using their experience to be able to kind of make that feel very, very warm and, and a fun experience rather than something kind of heavy and, and, and a little scary. And is that a um, similar concept also to, to Dandelion? Yeah, I think that idea is um, very much at the heart of the business. You know, this was, I, I missed some of the, t- the other parts with White Lion, you know, but you know, that, that's, that's very much a constant, this idea of, of opening up, you know, I, I think cocktails are an amazing tool for helping people gather together and have fun. You know, it's the, you know, food's amazing. It brings people together, but there's something about a drink that just breaks down that kind of mark between work and play. And it just helps things just, you know, booze is a great way of helping people relax and, you know, let go of some of their inhibitions with stuff. And, you know, it's just a nice way of kind of bringing a bit of fun together. And so that's been the constant. And then some of the other bits about White Lion, you know, trying to find different ways of making things exciting to people and trying to reduce the amount of waste that we create at the same time, trying to find different ways of looking at like a luxury product. That's, I suppose, very close to what we like to do. How does it compare to each other in terms of like the people that go there? Is this the one that you kind of prefer maybe during the week and then are yeah. you, maybe you stay away from one on the Friday? Or Well, it's, it's really nice to see that both have had a very kind of, um, kind of wide appeal. It's not been just for the cocktail geeks and it's not just being for the East London crowd. You know, we did create, they were weird venues, you know, there was, um, you know, that we always wanted them to be something that you could wander into. But I think given the way that we did them, they were, they were always seen as something that you'd make a trip for. And I think that just, you know, I, I think it helped it become something that was very, um, hopefully exciting to people and it made it feel a destination. Yeah. And, and so we, I don't think there's ever been anything that's like a marked difference between the two. I think White Lion, you could push the fun in a very different direction. Dan Lion, you could open up a, a different, you could break down the barriers of luxury in a different way. And with the new evolutions of what we've been doing in the projects, it's, it's trying to find different ways of doing that. You know, I think the London, especially as a, as a market changes so rapidly. We've always been excited by trying to find what can we do to keep it being interesting for, for a, a public as educated as, as they are in London. So how do you come up with your menus? It's a very, um, it's a very team led process. So, I mean, we've got a big team now. It's kind of scary looking back at how long we've been as a company to, to how many, how many people do you work with now? We're on 52. Whoa. Yeah. Which is great. But I think by the end of the year, we'll be pushing a hundred, wow, which is amazing, which is great. It's also terrifying, yeah, oh. I bet. <laughs> but it's, yeah, we, we try and do it in a way where we, we kind of pull on everybody's backgrounds because, you know, one thing that we've been really proud of is, is not drawing from just, I mean, the, the food and drink world doesn't just pull from the food and drink world, but we've tried to get to get people that are keen on doing things differently. 
instead of just doing, you know, you wouldn't come and work with us if you wanted to work in just a classic cocktail bar. Being able to come and, you know, attract those kind of people, we end up having like a huge range of different kind of specialisms, backgrounds, interests. And so we just try and try and give a brief. I kind of do it in the same way that we used to do at kind of art college. There'd be an overarching kind of topic and people would kind of look at that in different ways. And then we'd pull together those different stories, different ways of interpreting whatever that brief was. And then we'll start to work together to kind of direct that into something that you can actually consume rather than it just being this weird intangible thing. Um, so we, we kind of draw on a lot of inspirations from, from all over. Um, and some of it's kind of, sure, it's flavor-based. You know, you might come across something. It's either reminds you of something or kind of spurs a bit of nostalgia or you're kind of inspired by a set of flavors in it that you think you could riff off. But often it's always also the, the kind of stories. You know, you travel around, you see how different cultures use different things to help people come together. You know, you, you get look, you look at different techniques and, and also sometimes you just, you just find a story that's really inspiring. And we'll use that as a, as a kind of snowball to, to then start to develop an idea. So do you have a particular style about the drinks that you create? So if you were going to describe how you go about your drinks that you create to someone who has never tried them, how, mm -hmm. do you, how do you do that? I'd say it's kind of purposeful innovation. Like we don't, we don't ever do anything for gimmicks. So I'm going to I'll try and make an example of this. So we did a, one of the first drinks at White Lion was a bone dry martini um, and it had bone in it. And it was, I think a lot, it was, a, it was an organic chicken bone. So all, all totally fine. Um, I can but, just imagine like 52 people are on a big table go put bone yeah. in it. <laughs> It's bone dry. Yeah. I see what you did there. Yeah, but it was actually, yeah. it wasn't just the kind of play on the words. So it was, you know, I love martinis and I drink a gin martini and there's this lovely harmony between the gin and the vermouth. That is a brilliant marriage and it's one of those perfect drinks. I also drink vodka martinis and we'd made our own vodka and it was, you know, it was purposefully very full. It wasn't heavily filtered. It had this amazing cereal quality to it. And I want to be able to taste that character and that texture in a vodka martini so we kind of took inspiration from, if you think on like kind of uh, really fine burgundy, they've got this minerality and a flintiness to them. And so we we looked at how acidity starts to change the way your palate behaves. And we looked at some of those mineral notes. We roasted the chicken bone. We pounded it. Sounds really sinister, but we then dissolved it in phosphoric acid. Um, and it creates this kind of really, it's a bone tincture, but it's really drying. It's really, it's very if you have it by itself it like sucks all the moisture out of your palate but in the middle of the martini it was just a dash of that and then a, a like a distillate lemon over the top so you had this really clean martini with this amazing kind of burgundian style flintiness down the middle of the palate is the bone martini the most sort of your favorite thing that you've created there, there's a couple of the the, the old white lion drinks because i think we we were just able to to do things in a different way then you know with you know with white lion originally we we made all our own beer, wine, spirits, cordials, distillates. We just had wow. this ability to, we made, sounds really stupid to say, but we made our own water. It like, it gave us this opportunity. How do you to, make your own, you were um, filtering your own. We you took London's finest and yeah, so yeah. we filtered that down and then we added our own kind of mineral content back to it. It's like luxury council pop. Yeah, totally. And it was, it was <laughs> one of the opening weeks we had somebody who came up to the bar and went, this is going to sound really stupid, but I'm uh, <laughs> an amateur uh, water sommelier and your water's amazing. <laughs> Incredible. What a job. I know it was, um, 
It was and, one of the well, weirdest amateur, statements only I've heard. Amateur, only though. amateur. Yeah. How many years do you think it would take? I don't know. It's, 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 it's a long year of training. Years yeah. to be a proper, you know, <laughs> got to get accreditation, you know. Yeah. Wow. Blind testing. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like you can sometimes like taste the different when you go to a, like a new city, you're like, yeah, what you, is this? It, it's, it's weird to say, and you totally ta- can. And, and that was one of the things about, you know, in white line, we didn't have ice or citrus or any of these other, we didn't have any perishables because we tried to control everything through. And, you know, it, it's totally the case, you know, up to 40% of your drink is, is water. And, you know, you, you'd have come across it plenty of times in the world where you taste something like that tastes awful. The water tastes like it just clings to your mouth. And it's like, if that's 40% of your drink, it can make quite a significant difference. Well, if the ice is made of like, Well, that's the thing. Yeah. 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 I've yeah. definitely noticed yes. some uh, funky ice <laughs> in my time. I'm just not drinking at the right places. So when, um, when Dandelion won the world's best bar, uh-huh. I mean, tell us about the hangover the next day. Yeah, that was quite fun. Um, we, it was, um, in all honesty, it was a total surprise to us. You know, we had, we had announced, uh, a week prior that we were going to be closing the bar. And, you know, it was going into that with the idea that, you know, we, we thought Dandelion was changing significantly and, you know, we were really excited to kind of move it into a next phase. And that felt very appropriate, but it also felt like we were going to, drop in the world rankings and there's nothing wrong with that it's just that's the way we thought it was going to go so then to kind of take home the the prize um it just led to a double celebration so what is the new iteration of dandelion so the new bar is called lioness um and actually it's really amazing because we're we're opening in amsterdam pretty much simultaneously we're we have a habit of making our lives very difficult for ourselves and it's really wonderful to see because there's so much coordination that needs to co- go into that. You know, we're, we're doing two new bars um, in different cities at the same time. And what is being done to kind of make that happen is, you know, it, it's I'm, I'm in awe of the teams in general. Like I kind of go in every day and it's really inspiring to be around people that are doing this incredible stuff. And then you see this on top of it. You know, Danline is a crazy busy bar. We can do a thousand cocktails in a night. So it's it's not like it's a a very slow paced thing that we're just working out how to change around. We're taking something that's a big old beast and is, is, it means a lot to a lot of people. And we're, we're managing to, to kind of develop this whole new brand new concept, brand new space, brand new way of looking at things um, and sink it in, in a very military operation to be able to switch it around um, and be open in that time frame. So I'm, I'm really proud of what the, the team are doing at the moment, actually. Um, is Amsterdam, is that your first bar out of London? Yeah, that's our first. We did a project, uh, when we opened White Lion, we did a kind of consultancy project in New York. So I was going back and forth to New York every three to four weeks and trying to open a bar in London at the same time. Um, so it's, it's not the first time we've done something similar, but it's the first time we've opened a bar in a different place. And how come Amsterdam? I fell in love with it. It was, um, it was a really nice surprise, actually. I think I, cause we're opening in DC at the end of the year as well. And both of the cities, I think I, I expected, it sounds bad to say, but I expected not really love. I thought I'd find things that were interesting in them, of course, but I kind of felt like with Amsterdam, you know, you hear all the things of, of usually the Brits, what we get up to in, in Amsterdam. And you kind of hear all of the things about like, you know, it, it just seems a bit more of a stag city. Mm-hmm. And then I kind of landed in there and I just saw this totally different side. It was, I didn't see any of that actually. You know, the the first couple of trips I did, I went out for a talk and I was 
just blown away. You know, it was beautiful. It was historic without feeling like it was a toy town. You know, it was very manageable to get around. It helped that it was a beautiful sunny day. And you're walking around these canals going, this is idyllic. And it was then, I, you know, I did a boat tour and it was, it was, you know, it was just a nice chance to see things from a different perspective. And I don't ever read into history. Well, I don't read into history too much, but I really love being told about it. And so hearing this perspective and all of the things about how the progressiveness of the Dutch is not just the modern thing. And it's not just the sex and the drugs and the booze and all those things. It's something that's been part of the, the, the kind of culture and the approach and the way that they design everything for, for centuries. And it was really amazing to see something that felt very, very progressive, especially given what's happening in the landscape at the moment. It was really nice to see something that felt very like really honest and, you know, it works, you know, you go there and you're like, people are happy, you know, it got voted one of the best places to live in Europe. Like it's beautiful, it's clean. And, you know, th there was one of the facts that really stood out. So they outsource their prisons. There's such low crime rate that, well, that there's not enough criminals to they rent them out. Oh, wow. It's baffling. And you got all that from a booze cruise. <laughs> it's amazing what you'll hear from uh, pub landlords. <laughs> so you obviously you, you're kind of not averse to, to change because uh -huh. you, you've now renamed White Lion. Yeah. So why? Well, it was the same thing actually it was seen with Dan Lion. So when, when White Lion opened, it was, to call it controversial, I think is an understatement. It was... You know, I, I said about Dan Lyon maybe seeing as an affront to people. White Lion was a total insult to people in their eyes. They saw in it as what a, way? Well, if you saw cocktail bars at the time, you know, to be a bona fide cocktail bar, you had to have big blocks on blocks of ice on the top that you chiseled away. You squeezed your lemons a la minute and you kind of made your drink out of 10 different bottles that you pulled around. Like theatre, kind of. Yeah. Hugely theatrical, hugely kind of um, a throwback to that speakeasy cocktail vibe of things and which there is nothing wrong in it's just that they're also i just wanted to show that there was other ways of doing things and so we took away all of those pillars you know you didn't have you didn't have those two things that were seen as the the, the kind of gold star of, of of bartending um and you know we didn't we didn't use the same language we didn't force people to sit down we didn't play jazz music we we did things that we thought would be really fun and would show that there was a different way of doing stuff and it was, it, it was interesting. You know, even the fact that we had bottle cocktails, you know, a lot of people were like, oh, it's the world's first, first bottle cocktail bar. And it wasn't, it wasn't about that. You know, bottles are a very useful mechanism for, for holding liquids. Um, but it was. I've never heard of yeah. these things. Bottles, you say, what are <laughs> they? Makes so much sense. <laughs> and, um, you know, everybody was like, well, you, you, you're killing the theater of it. You know, you're taking away the magic of a cocktail. Um, and people did, they got really, really upset by it. And it was amazing to then see something that went from like total heretic to being really normal in, you know, actually kind of quite a short period of time. It was about four years. And it was amazing to see that change. It sounds like it's not just about changing it. It's about evolving it. Yeah, totally. And it's, it is about, it's an inclusive part of that discussion. We're not trying to say we're doing something nobody else can. We wanted to go, this is important for the industry to look at these things. And, you know, that then benefits, like, you know, the people who are coming through the venues and, you know, all of that is, you know, it's supported by each other. So it's really, I saw it as really crucial to, to kill it. Um, you know, it was, 
you know, if you're trying to be cutting edge, you can't just then rest on your laurels and then go, okay, it was cutting edge and therefore it remains cutting edge forever. And it's like, well, we've, we're very fortunate to have these spaces. We're very fortunate to have amazing teams and, and people who believe in what we do. So it felt just right to kind of change it all up what was the reaction from the team because there must be someone doing a lot of work in something yeah like, actually we're not going to do this anymore and he's like oh, oh, what yeah you, you know what there was i i can in hindsight i think i've been a little insensitive to that with the team at times when i told them that we were going to change dandelion i um uh i i did it in a i thought it would be hilarious to kind of get everybody together and go we're closing yeah and i was like what <laughs> somebody cried and I was like, Oh God, this is horrible. Like I, I didn't mean it like that. It meant to be, cause to, in my head it was, it was so clear. It was exactly the right thing to do. It's and a new chapter. Isn't yeah. It? And I'd gone through all those motions, but I have to, I kind of forgot about the fact that it was, it was really, you know, they are that story. And so saying it like that comes across as, as, as really abrupt. So can you tell us about super lion and how it changed? So how- with the old white lion space, we had two floors. And we had the downstairs that was our production space. And also whenever White Lion threw a party, which we loved to do, we would, we'd have this kind of basement space. Um, so we had, you know, we had this really great little space and it was kind of underutilized. So we knew that we wanted to, to kind of change up the heart of what White Lion was going to be. And the, the, the logical evolution of that was, was Cub. Um, and, you know, we, but at the same time, we're a small company, like we're a family thing. We don't have the the ability to just go, cool, we'll do a full refurb and just like rock out a venue being closed for nine months. Like we, we just couldn't afford to do that. So we opened up Superline downstairs. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Since 2013, Bombas has donated over 100 million socks, underwear, and T-shirts to those facing homelessness. If we counted those on air, this ad would last over 1,157 days. But if we counted the time it takes to make a donation possible, it would take just a few clicks. Because every time you make a purchase, Bombas donates an item to someone who needs it. Go to bombas.com slash ACAST and use code ACAST for 20% off your first purchase. That's bombas.com slash ACAST, code ACAST. And it was it was great, you know, but we... We opened that and testament to, to Robin on this, like our old ops manager, he managed to turn it around from closing White Lion to opening Super Lion within a week. Wow. And Super Open, it was great. And what we found was the the brand was bigger than the space was. Mm-hmm. Um, and that was that was a difficult thing because when we were, you know, it's actually really organic how it came about into into Amsterdam, but we we essentially we were always planning on refurbing Super Lion. 
because we'd done a huge amount of work. You know, we then did nine months of development to to turn Cub into the space it is. And it was really important it didn't look like white line with food. So we turned from this kind of stripped back, like 80s black and chrome aesthetic into something that was kind of bright yellow and and, and kind of warm and green. Um, and so we felt like there was this kind of difference between the two. Super was, you know, it, it felt cozy, sure. And it was really, it was inhabited by the team, but we we felt like we needed to give it a bit more love. So that plan was was in place. And then at the same time, we we're over in Amsterdam and Ian turned to me at one point when we were looking at what would be appropriate for, for the Amsterdam market. And he went, you know, that's Super Lion, right? That's why Super Lion's in Amsterdam. So you mentioned Cub. And mm-hmm. um, what's the concept behind that? So Cub was trying to break down the kind of barriers between food and drink. And to me, you know, coming from a chef's background, they were always the same thing. And, you know, the way that we approach producing things, the way that we work with suppliers, it was always the kind of same idea. Um, and, you know, we've been working with Doug on a few different projects and we became very close from, you know, White Line and Silo opened at very similar times and they were very different sides of the conversation around waste and sustainability. Um, you know, nowhere was going to kind of match up to what Doug was doing at Silo. Um, but what we wanted to do was look at a different side of that conversation. We wanted to show like particularly Londoners who, you know, are, are very receptive to these kind of ideas that luxury and sustainability are not at odds with each other. They can be very much together and you can create something that feels special, that feels very normal, but also does good for the planet. And, you know, we, we started crafting this thing that really drew together food and drink and different ways that we could use that as not only as a way of reducing waste, but as a way of kind of having a different conversation with our guests and created this space that felt very, you know, it feels very special. It, it's like a, it's a really cute space that it's, it's fun. That's the nicest thing about it as a restaurant. Um, and actually it's having been kind of like working on the new projects for a while, it's absolutely phenomenal to see, you know, I get the reports back and I get the feedback through social media and through Google and stuff like that. I've never seen, you know, we keep an eye on things around the world. I've never seen the number of people who are walking out of there going, this is the best meal I've had in my life. And it's so wonderful to see because they're also, they're not using the first line going, it was a sustainable dinner. They're going, this is the best meal I've had in my life. And I feel good about what I've done for the planet with it. And that, that's really nice to me. That that's a, a real, um, it feels very warm in, in terms of what we've been trying to do with that. So you find that you're having these conversations a lot. Because I think from, you know, from the industries that we work in, these conversations are constantly going on. Yeah. Well, I think it's, it's been pushed in lots of different ways. In one sense, it's, well, people realize that they have to do something about it. It, It's, you know, whether you like it or not, it's going to become part of your business. Um, So I think people are starting to adopt some of those ideas. I think people are also realizing that there is a commercial opportunity around it. You know, people are making more conscientious choices. They are willing to to kind of take that steer towards something that, you know, okay, if you've got two things that are delicious and one also does good for the planet, I mean, you're going to take that route. Mm. And also people are going, well, you know, I'm trying to look at things in a different way. I'm trying to think about the impact me buying my coffee has on, on the farmer. I'm thinking about what is the waste downstream of this as well. So people are opening up whole new business avenues to, to try and find like, you know, different ways of addressing these things and, and solving some of those problems that big business or our government has just decided to ignore. Um, and I think that's, that's been a huge change, but 
there's also been a bit of greenwashing, I think. You know, you're seeing people just going, okay, we've got to say this thing. We're doing the sustainability, yeah. sustainability thing. Just without, to get on the same train. Yeah, and then going, okay, that's just a word you've used. There's not actually any relevance yeah. here. <laughs> um, and listen, nobody's perfect. You know, this is a, a totally evolving conversation. And the more that people hear about it, the better. So I don't want to damn that too much. But I think, you know, people are also people are very smart. Like the public are very, very savvy to things. And I think they will see through some of that stuff. And it's, it's great to see people just becoming more aware of, of the conversation. What is the most popular cocktail that you, you've actually created? I think the, the Koji hard shake, uh, Dan Lyon is, uh, we've had a lot of questions since we we announced the closure. They were like, but you're keeping that drink, right? <laughs> <laughs> and, um, it was the people get very attached to beverages. Yeah, you know. it's it, and it, it is. It's like I suppose it's like signature dishes of places yeah. that you know people send folk down to try and stuff like that. So it's um, in 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 a sense, it's it's really lovely because people are, are kind of getting behind a drink like that. But it's um, it's also going to die, <laughs> so it's not going to carry on. Um, but maybe the beeswax old fashioned that was. Um, it became a bit of a signature drink. And again, it was, it started in White Lion and then it kind of, it's had different evolutions over the years. Um, a version of it kind of got morphed into one of the, the, the kind of retail products that we did. We've done a version that still exists at Cub. You know, some of the, we have a partner bar in, in Selfridges. There's a version there. You know, there, there's a, I suppose it's kind of branched out in its own way, but the harder that drink kind of lives on. And you've written a book as well, haven't you? Are yeah. any of the recipes for these in your in your book or you can't give away those Whoa, no. yeah i was gonna say you know what weirdly so the, there's there's the first book was kind of very much just drink space and the second had had food and drink and when we first got approached to to kind of do a, a cocktail book um it was like do you want to write about the different tinctures and distillates and things you do and I was like, no, nobody cares about that. <laughs> like, Excuse me, I'll just be distilling uh, this at home for the next six weeks. Well, precisely that. And I was like, some of these drinks take 50 steps. You know, I, I'm somebody it's who the makes The of yeah. drinks. Like, I, was like, I just want to get drunk as fast as I can. <laughs> <laughs> this is Ben's approach to drinking. It's so responsible. Well, it was, um, you know, I was just like, nobody cares. Nobody wants to do that at home. Like, you, you want to be able to have drinks that practically fit in your house. That's ingredients that you can get hold of. That's things that don't take three weeks to make. Well, that's the thing. So when you're hosting in your yeah. own house, right, and you, you're you're in charge of the drinks, yeah. what what tips have you then got, right? Because if you're making the drinks and you've got a concentrate on the drink and you're cutting the lemon and you're chatting to your uh -huh. friends and all of a sudden your finger's off and it's rolling <laughs> down the stairs, what, what is the to cocktail? That's just really easy. That is sort of impressive, but, you know, it's, you're not going to be – they're there for like 20, 25 minutes. I mean, that that's the heart of the first book is, is how can you make those cocktails fit practically into your life and it, at different times as well. And um, one of my favorites that I always tell friends to do, and there's different versions of it in the book, is bottle something up as a base. Um, and, you know, you could do that with like, one of the ones that I've always loved as a kind of combination was um, gin, rhubarb and chocolate. And we'd have that as a base it's a bottled drink. It's stable. It lives in my fridge. And if anybody comes around to the house and if your friends are anything like mine, nobody turns up at the same time, have a bottle of fizz, bottle of that, pour a little bit of the, the kind of base into a, into a flute or a cocktail glass and you just top it up with fizz. And so you've got a drink that you make in 10 seconds. It's super tasty. It over delivers on, on, on what it like, you know, in, in terms of the, how you've made that drink. And it's just super easy and it always fits. It feels celebratory. It feels special. 
Um, and it's, it works. It's just a, such an easy way of being able to great, give people a cocktail ahead of what else you want to make afterwards. You know, I love making people martinis, but that's a bit more involved. You know, if you've got 10 people coming around to, to have drinks, you don't want to be stuck in the kitchen shaking up margaritas. It's just, you know, you, it's the same thing with your food. You know, you don't, you don't make really precise tweezer food for, for your like favorite family dinner. You do something that you all sit around the, the dish and you can chat away and serve each other out. So I do, I try and do the same thing. You know, there's times where it's, it's lovely to, to show off a bit and have something that feels special. Um, but it's got to be appropriate to the setting and, and, and who's coming around. So, um, yeah, it's, without making this sound like a plug for the book, it's like, it, it's very good at guiding you through can those plug ideas. The book, plug the book. <laughs> Available on Amazon. Right? It, it is. And, and all good local retailers. It's, um, it's, yeah, it, it's called good things to drink because it was just about going, okay, this, this works in this setting. And it's a very natural way of using drinks to bring people together. So this is something I've always want, wanted to know. Okay. How early is too early? <laughs> Yeah, I, I've got it's in. It's currently 10 a.m. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I've, uh, I've been at like a, a, a whiskey tasting before and I've been like, okay, so this is more of a breakfast whiskey. And you see some people in the room go, what? Um, <laughs> Morning. <cocktail>. Yes. <laughs> well, the thing is, again, if it's about balance and it is sensible and, you know, of course, alcohol is something that could easily become like a, a trapping for people. So, you know, you, you've got to make sure that it is balanced. But at the same time, there's nothing. There are certain settings where a brunch cocktail is perfect. There's certain points where you can have something that is, you know, a, an aperitif alongside a lunch. And there's, you know, the, the drinks around that, like if you're nailing whiskey or like a, a Manhattan. Nailing like, whiskey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> then that's maybe indicative that, that things are kind of spiraling a little out of control. But, you know, if you're able to, to kind of fold it in in a balanced way, there's, there's certain drinks that suit those kind of different points in the day wonderfully. Yeah. I can't do daytime drinking. If I start drinking at lunch by about 3pm, I'm asleep. Yeah. It, to be honest, if I was drinking, I'd be the same. Like, it's like, I, I can have a a glass of champagne. If or, I have or a bottle, like, yeah, some yeah. wine at lunch, I'm just like, oh, and now yeah. I need a nap. Well, speaking about, you know, cocktails, drinks and alcohol, uh-huh. I've got some questions for you to kind of test your knowledge. Okay. And maybe even educate you. Sure. I bet he's going to know. Oh, yeah, totally not. It's going to be really so, embarrassing. Do you know why we toast? Um, well, there's, there's different things. There's like, we're sailing. And then there's the idea that you would cheers to knock a bit of your drink into somebody else's in case you were going to be poisoned by them. Okay. That's, that's not the version I, okay. I have actually. Uh, so in I think they're all right. Romans, they used to uh, drop pieces of toast into the wine for good health. Oh, no, I did not know that. That's probably one version of many. Yeah. Yeah, I think it's like the... I was just making this up. <laughs> <laughs> Some of these I will make up, but that one is... Uh... I like that one better than mine. <laughs> so do you know what the three-sip rule is? Three-sip rule? This is, this is pretty niche. No. I was trying really hard to catch you out. Okay. Uh, so this is something um, that can be found in, in Texas, where there is a state law that prohibits you from having more than three sips of beer whilst standing. So you've got to what, sit down. Sitting down is ah. okay. Yeah, sitting down is fine. Right. I mean, I don't know who's on watch at this point. Yeah. Three sips. Sit down. Well, also, I think that's, you know, you're going to push people there because they're going to be like, I can totally neck a pint in three sips. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> chug, chug. Yeah. My brother can do it on one. That's, Ooh. yeah, I can never do that. No, neither can I. I can, a Guinness is very easy for me to, to kind of sink very, very quickly, but still not doing it in one. 
<laughs> Strawpedoing that game. Yes. <laughs> um, what has three times more pressure than a car tire? Champagne bottle. Bing. Mm. So, can you name any uh, radium-based cocktails? R- say, say it again. Radium-based cocktails. Radium. Yeah. <sighs> this is. A, I mean, I don't know wow. where you've got these. Yeah, from. that's good. <laughs> There's a website called Google.com. <laughs> Never heard of it. No, I don't think I can. So apparently there was um, a radium-based alcoholic drink known as the Atomic Cocktail, um, but it, it didn't really last that long uh, due to uh, the prolonged exposure. Health effects. Yeah, minor fevers, headaches, and depression. Well, the, the, it's really interesting. You know, you look back into the old archives of, you know, when Coca-Cola was invented and stuff like that, and you'll see adverts around kind of, you know, 19th century adverts around different booze and different things that they infuse. You had quinine whiskeys and um, various other things, but you'd see a lot of things like a heroin whiskey or cocaine whiskey. Delicious. And you're like, oh, yeah, people were making some very, very dubious health claims back in the day. Well, well, good knowledge. What's the world's most expensive cocktail? Um, well, <laughs> we have a hundred thousand pound one. <laughs> um, but I think it's probably one Has with Has anyone a, ever ordered that? No, we have a couple of different Does tiers. Does that make it if, uh, official? If no one's ordered it, can it still... That's a good point. Yeah. What's um, in that? Fact check that, fact check. Well, it's this thing that we do called time capsules. So it's it's not really just one cocktail, but it's more like a way of... I suppose it's kind of like a portraiture in a bottle. Um, so we do tiered ones that go from 10 to £100,000. Wow. Okay. Well, I think that's pretty, I mean, that's I, a great I presume, answer. I presume I'll the t- one has something like a diamond ring in it or something. Yes. Very, very close. Yeah. It's got a, what is it? What? Oh, it's, what else has it got in it that's making it so, yeah, it's it, got a diamond. I yeah. think it's usually, which I think is kind of cheating. Yeah. yeah. Just chucking something really expensive. This, this, this comes with a gold. penthouse. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> to drink this one in a penthouse. <laughs> so now we've got a quick round, which I've named cocktail or mocktail. Okay. But with a twist. Are these cocktails, or am I telling you fibs? Okay. <laughs> okay. So I'm going to give you the ingredients. Uh, sodium alginate, calcium lactate, and con- Quantro. Real. It's a cocktail. It's a spherified Quantro. Yes. <laughs> yes. What about this one? Um, we've got peanut butter, celery, and Newcastle brown ale. Fake. Absolutely made up. Yeah. <laughs> Hopefully no one will ever make that. Okay, picture this. A basic Bloody Mary with the addition of hot sauce, Irish stout, a garnish of pickled vegetables, quills egg, bacon, and a grilled cheese sandwich. Real. Do you have any more information on that? Well, I, I mean, I, I, I think the Bloody Mary gets a bad rap where it just ends up with a lobster and like <laughs> a bottle of champagne, everything under the sun in it. So I, I presume that's served somewhere. Yes, it's yes, called it's true. a wakey wakey Mary eggs and bacon. <laughs> At least it's kind of funny. It <laughs> sounds quite delicious. I'd have a, I think a grilled cheese sandwich with a, a Bloody Mary. A Bloody I mean, Mary would be really good. It's essentially a soup and sandwich. That's a lunchtime combination. Yeah. Maybe not. Well, so we can move on to a next, you know, little section where we just sort of want to talk about your London. Okay. So um, how long have you been a, a Londoner? Um, this time round, I've been living in London for nine years. Um, this time round? So well, we go so, the first time? Well, I moved, so I went from Birmingham to London. So I came down here to go to art college and I was here for about eight, maybe about 
two years. Where did you go to art school? St. Martin's. Um, I moved around the St. Martin's site. So I was originally at Backhill, Eagle Court, Backhill, and then Southampton Row, which I lament no longer there. Um, and then I moved, I did a total switch. I went from doing fine art to biology up in Scotland. And then I did a philosophy degree. So I was there for seven years. Uh, and then I moved back to London. So nine years this time around, but kind of 11 in total. So have you lived in the same place now you're, you've been here a while? Uh, I've always been around East London, um, but I've moved three times. Whereabouts do you live now? I live in Leighton. Ah. Um, so as, as a lot of, a lot of friends at the moment who couldn't afford to be in Hackney have now pushed out. It's, there's a nice little community of us in Leighton, actually. I'm like particularly food and drink people trying to convince each other tr- to open a venue. I'm sure all my friends in Leighton would love you and your foodie friends to open up more places. <laughs> They're always like, I like it here. It's not enough nice little cafes. There's, yeah. it, it's growing. Yeah, it's like, dying. And the thing is, it's always, it's a balance. You know, you don't ever want to push people who've been part of that community out but there's also a lot of stuff in Leighton that's just not good like there's a lot of closed shops yeah I was going to say there's lots of there's yeah. lots of kind of space that you could do absolutely it. and it's it's great to see some of those you know there's, there's a couple of like older established places but there's a few new things that are opening up that are, are really wonderful to see so um where do you go for inspiration in London the, the thing about that's nice about London is you can wander around and there's something new at every turn you know it's you know, you you can just, I've got a terrible sense of direction and I like walking around because I know I'm going to get lost and I'm going to discover something new. And it's something I really say to to people traveling to the city is, is walk the city um, and, you know, take the back streets. You'll find things that are, you know, and that inspiration comes from lots of different things. It's like people doing amazing stuff here, but it's also like in the buildings. It's like, you know, it's in the graffiti. It's in the, like the music you hear. It's, you know, it's a very, it's a very dynamic and very exciting city. And it's not in, you know, the wonderful thing is it's not in one area. It's not in one style. It's it's in everything. So, you know, I still love going to the galleries. I love going to gigs. I love going to, you know, expose myself to other kind of creative kind of projects. Um, but it's also nice just to wander and get lost and just see things from a different perspective. And I find that really inspiring. And I think there's an energy to London that's unique to anywhere else in the world. All right. Well, I think we're ready for the, the final section, which we called the London Lowdown. Okay. Sonia, release the bowler hat. The London Lowdown. We're back in picking it up. Here we go. Oh, right. amazing. So you need to pick a question from okay. this very old school bowler hat. You read and it out and then, uh, yeah, tell us a story. Okay. If you could live anywhere in London, where would you live? Um, I think there are some of those. I, you know what? I'd actually love to live in, you know, how back in the day you'd have those artists that lived in a hotel and they would just kind Chelsea of see hotel. all the magic. Yeah, and I would... Or even somewhere like I bet there's like a ton of mad stories that go through somewhere like the Savoy. I've never I've never seen a room in the Savoy, and I think there'd be something fun about like who was it who lived there? It was like a writer or someone who yeah, lived there for like um, the last however many years of their life, and then they were and someone lived there for ages, and as they were being carried out on their deathbed, they were like, "It was the food." <laughs> uh, <which was> great. <laughs> That's great. Um, um, yeah, and I think there's something like I don't. I spend my, a lot of my time in hotels and they kind of lose their glamour for a while. But I think in London, it would have a very different feel. Okay, great. Next one. 
where would you take someone who'd never been to London before? And that, it's kind of fun when they've had um, friends visit. And actually my cousin was over end of last year. He's based in San Francisco. He's here with his family. And they really wanted to do the London Eye. And um, we went and met them and it was freezing cold outside. And, you know, it quickly transpired that that was a terrible idea um, just because the queues would have been just unforgiving in the cold. And so we did a walk around kind of the monuments and some of the things around like those historic kind of landmarks of the city. And I realized I hadn't done them as an adult. I'd only done them as a kid when you visit London and you you go and see those things on a school trip or something like that. And I think there is something that's very easy to dismiss as as a Londoner. You go, yeah, there's that stuff, but there's these really cool kind of smaller things to check out. And those smaller things are wonderful. They're the character. But I think it's also really important not to forget those things that are that are iconic. And it's it's really amazing to see the reason why there are on a ton of postcards and there there are still people that flock to the country to go see them. But yeah, you need someone to visit as an excuse, I think. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Which is bad. Fave London artist. That's real difficult. Can be a present or past. I'm actually going to go with um, something just because it's been spurred on by uh, the kind of recent exhibition. And I'm going to say Tracy Emin because... I think there was lots of amazing, um, you know, London's kind of created so much kind of opportunity for different artists. But I think it's also nice with some of the, that period of the, the YBFs, you know, a lot of people that I was at art college with kind of dismissed it as kind of, again, this shock and gimmick stuff. And I think when you see it in a retrospect, like it's going on at the moment, and you see somebody who's, you know, been part of London as a character for a long time, you know, You'd see her in some of the East End pubs and stuff like that. And it was really nice. And, you know, to take a controversial figure who is, you know, really is one of our cultural icons, you know, it's done a huge amount for shaping modern art in a way that I think often gets dismissed or, or poo-pooed even in a way you're like, people are like, oh, that's not art. And I think that's. I'm just um, so glad you said poo-pooed. Yeah. <laughs> I'm trying not to swear. Oh. You can swear. It's fine. Okay. I like the way you said YBFs, the foodies, instead of the YBAs. You're in like oh, so in God, the zone yeah. of the foodie zone. I, yeah. Actually, I was at a dinner with them on Monday and that's totally been in my head. Yes. Yeah. But, um, YBFs, YBAs. Very uh, close. You know, Same young ideas. British people doing cool <laughs> stuff. Okay. Things you miss when you leave London. Um vegetables uh, <laughs> you yeah whenever i'm on the road i'm like oh my god does nobody else in the world eat vegetables um actually it's the i was when i was going back and forth to new york a lot and i, I never had the same love for it that a lot of people have I, I don't get me wrong i love the city but i never had that thing of going i want to move here to me it was you know looking at cities of that stature it's always london to me it's 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 way more exciting and then there were certain things that you would, you know, you'd go on the tube in New York and then you'd walk past the kind of garbage pails in, in, um, summer, which just stings the back of your throat with how much it stinks. You, you realized how clean and functional London is. And that's something I think people really forget about. You know, when you wait more than a minute for a tube, you're like, Oh my God, I can't believe this is <laughs> happening. <laughs> oh, here's another one. Yeah. And, you know, or you forget about how you know, there is this social attitude towards kind of looking after people and it being about a community. And 
I really noticed it when I was then on the road a lot and I would come back and I would see the green space. I would see the, the fact that it was a clean city and, and you saw it in the way that, I don't know, people felt more looked after and, and more of a community. And, and that's something that I, I'm always really grateful for as we're landing back into London. I'm like, it feels like a relief, but also it feels very, yeah, you feel very proud of that. Well, Ryan, it's been so nice talking to you. Oh, good. It's Thank you been so much. It's been a lovely chat. Thanks so much. Real pleasure. Wow, that's mad. Who closes a bar after being named best bar in the world? Someone who knows they can open an even better one, that's who. True with that. That was really great. He's such an amazing guy. He is. He's so nice to talk to. And listeners, please like, share, tell your mum and subscribe. And if you've got a cool Londoner who you think we should chat to, tweet us at London the Inside. And tune in next time for another great Londoner. Bye. A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare tri-term medical plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare tri-term medical plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.